What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone is relaxing this weekend because that was a busy week of sports. It feels like it was two weeks combined into one. We had the Boston Marathon on Monday and Patriots Day in Boston with everything else going on there. The NBA NHL playoffs are obviously in full swing. Max Scherzer was caught with a foreign substance and was suspended for 10 games. There's a big debate going on there. Jalen Hurts got a new contract. There's a million different things going on. We have a lot to talk about today, but I want to start with the most recent news, NFL suspensions for gambling. Let's get right into it. All right, so you guys probably saw on Friday that five different NFL players were suspended for sports gambling. Now, we all know that NFL players can't gamble on the NFL. It's been a rule for several years now. Ever since they started dealing with sports books, players have not been able to gamble on the games. Famously, last year, Calvin Ridley on the Atlanta Falcons was suspended for an entire year. It was indefinitely, then it became an entire year for placing three different parlay bets on games. As a quick refresher for those that don't remember, Calvin Ridley downloaded and created an account on the Hard Rock Sportsbook mobile app in Florida in November 2021, and he used his real name. He then placed three, five, and eight game parlay bets over five days. So three different parlay bets over five days. All of the parlays included the Atlanta Falcons, to win the game. So he was on the team, but he was away from the team. He was away for mental health reasons at the time. He was not with the team. He was not playing with the team. He was not in communication with the team. He was by himself. He actually wrote a really good article on the Players' Tribune discussing some of the things that he was dealing with at the time. I highly recommend you read it. It's really, really, really good. But look, he got caught. He bet on games. He knows he's not allowed to do that. He got suspended for the entire year. Now, one of the things that I want to discuss here is how the NFL catches people. The NFL has a sports betting data provider called Genius Sports. And what they do is they work with the NFL to find people that are doing this. So anytime a player signs up or a name signs up or a mobile app signs up and it's located to that individual, they alert the NFL. They do an investigation. The NFL then contacts the team and hands down punishment. So the Lions had four players this time that were caught. They had Jamison Wilson, who was their first round pick last year. They actually traded up to go get him. They had CJ Moore, who's a safety. They had Stanley Berryhill, and they had Quintez Sefras, who's a wide receiver too. And then there was another player, a fifth player, Shaka Tony, who's a Washington Commander's defensive end. So five players in total, four of them are the Lions, one's on the Washington Commanders. And the other interesting part about this is there was also reportedly coaches, ESPN's reporting that there were several coaches on the staff of the Lions that were released as well because they were gambling on games too. Now, a couple of these players, William, Jamison Williams and Stanley Berryhill, only got six game suspensions because they were not betting on NFL games. They were betting on college football games, but they were still suspended because the bets were done on NFL property. So these players are allowed to bet on, on college football games, they're allowed to bet on other stuff. They just can't bet on NFL games, but they can't bet on anything on NFL property. So in the locker room, at the facility, on the team bus, whatever it is, anything that's related to the team or the NFL, they cannot do it there. So those two players got suspended for six games. The other three players got suspended for an entire year. Essentially, they're, they don't have a, a full suspension date. It's indefinitely at the time, but they can re apply after one year. That's what happened to Calvin Ridley, and now he's been reinstated and he's on the Jaguar. So five players suspended, a couple coaches too. I want to talk about the, the, the consequences of this though. When Calvin Ridley got suspended, he lost out on $11 million. Freaking idiotic, right? He bet $1,500 on games and he lost out on $11 million in salary, plus endorsements, whatever it is. Obviously, that's dumb. No one would make that trade idiotic, 
The players uh, in this scenario are in similar circumstances, albeit less salary. Williams was a first round pick, but his contract isn't massive because I, I think he was like 12th overall or something like that. So he, he got a huge chunk of it up front and he'll lose probably a few million dollars and the other players combined will lose a few million dollars too. But the problem for me is like the optics for the NFL that they've created with this situation are just freaking terrible. If you think about the NFL, your first offense DUI gets you a suspension without pay for three games. Three games. A first offense PED violation, steroids, HGH, gets you a suspension without pay for four games. Four games. And a first offense domestic violence in the NFL gives you a suspension without pay for six games. Six games. So they're essentially saying that betting on an NFL game, whether you're with the team or not with the team, is twice as bad as a domestic violence arrest. That's what they're saying, right? And look, I get it. It's the integrity of the game. It's the utmost important. People aren't going to believe in the game. They're not going to watch the game. They're not going to be fans of the game. It destroys the business if you allow players to throw games, if you allow players to bet on games, if there's any suspicion that the integrity of the game is being impacted. I totally understand that. But my problem is when you log on to NFL Network or you go to watch NFL Network or ESPN or any of these other media companies, there's an ad for DraftKings. Then there's an ad for FanDuel. And then they talk about the suspension. And then there's an ad for, for BetMGM and all these other sports betting companies, right? So the point being that they, they've engrossed themselves. Some of these stadiums have sports books in the stadiums, right? And the NFL owners are now voting on this year to allow people to bet during the games at the stadium, right? So you're going to have sports book on NFL stadium property that people can go to during the game and bet on the game. And the players are not allowed to do any of this. 100% understand, get it. I totally get it. But the NFL has created this situation by wanting to make so much money off of these deals. Look, when PASPA got repealed, the NFL was a little bit hesitant for years and years and years. They spent millions of dollars fighting this. They were hiring lawyers. They were lobbying on this stuff. They didn't want it to become legal. They were actually not allowing players to be associated with this stuff. Drew Brees has a famous story where he got in trouble and wasn't allowed to go to a sports gambling conference in Las Vegas and other stuff too. There's a million different stories like this. But I think times have changed, right? FanDuel, DraftKings, all these big companies are throwing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in marketing and the NFL wants a piece of that. So what do they do? They allowed it. It's legal now. They try to create some rules around this. But ultimately, who do I blame? Obviously, the players that I blame, they know the policy, et cetera. But two, why is it just the Lions? Like, that seems kind of weird, right? That seems very strange. Obviously, there's a Commanders player and there was a Falcons player. I don't know about the Commanders, but the Falcons was a little bit different of a situation if you read his Players' Tribune article. But to have four players from one team and multiple coaches, that seems strange, right? I'm not saying anything necessarily is going on that's weird, but it seems like a failure from the coaching staff. And that starts up top, right? Like if you're the owner, if you're the head coach, if you're the GM, if you're in a position of power in that organization, you failed the organization. That's exactly what happened. There are multiple people on your team, including a first round pick, multiple wide receivers, a safety, other players that are being suspended, coaches that had to be let go. Because one, they may have just not understood the rules, right? Some of these players were not betting on NFL games, but they were doing it on property. So I think that's a huge thing in my mind, which is like, how did this happen? You got to talk to the head coach. Campbell, you need to talk to Dan Campbell, figure out what the hell's going on. If you're the owner, you're obviously not happy about that. It's a stain. The NFL shouldn't be happy about this. It got more aggressive. I would have assumed that people saw what happened with Calvin Ridley and said, God damn, he lost $11 million betting 1500 bucks. What an idiot, right? And I'm sure a lot of people did say that, but it didn't stop more people from getting in trouble. This is only going to happen more often. These sports books are being shoved down your throat by a lot of these different companies. 
and the players are trying to get in on the action. Look, there's a component of this, which is that it can become an addiction if people have addictive personalities. And I think that's worth mentioning because we don't know what the circumstances are here. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the NFL has to hand down very severe punishments because you can't mess with the integrity of the game. And that's exactly what they're doing here. We'll see what happens. The NFL obviously has a lot of people policing this. Again, you have to be an idiot to be doing this. Regardless of what the circumstances are, you know that you're going to get caught. It's all digital. It's all online. You sign up for a mobile sports book and you place a bet and you're an NFL player, you're getting caught. You're going to get caught. The NFL has a team of employees. They're paying people money to go and track this stuff down. And these players are costing themselves millions and millions and millions of dollars. I hate to see it. I wish they didn't do it. Obviously, it sucks. The other thing to think about here is that there's this weird divide happening right now between what's happening in Europe with sports betting and what's happening here. If you think about the U.S. specifically, what has it been for the past few years? It's been push, 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 push. It's just trying to get as much marketing done as possible, try to expand as fast as possible, get as many people to be betting as fast as possible, approve as many states as fast as possible. And that's what we've seen. It's been super, super aggressive. All the leagues are in on it now. You can't attend a sporting event. You can't attend a stadium. You can't watch ESPN. You can't watch any of these networks without seeing sports betting. They now bring people on to talk about the bets. It's not taboo anymore. You know, people are tweeting about it. They're doing all this stuff. These companies are massive. They're making billions of dollars off this stuff. And it's very aggressive. And if you look at Europe, it's the exact opposite. What's happening in Europe? It got so aggressive that they're now winding everything back. It's a huge problem. The gambling problem in Europe is massive. I don't know if people are listening to this in Europe or people who have been to Europe have seen this themselves firsthand, but it's a huge problem. And what we're doing now is if you saw last week, I think it was last week, was the Premier League announced that you can no longer have gambling sponsorships on your shirts for the Premier League clubs. No longer have gambling sponsorships. It's impacting, I think it was 50 or $60 million in sponsorship revenue annually, annually, that they have to give up now because the Premier League does not want the gambling sponsorships on their shirts. That's how big of a problem it's become in Europe. And to be honest, look, I think that there is a case to be made that some of this stuff could be happening here too. You expand, expand, expand so aggressively. What happens next? Some of this stuff could come back to bite people in the ass. We'll see what happens. Again, I think the players are wrong. They shouldn't have done it. I think the, the Lions organization failed the players, right? If they didn't know the specific rules, obviously no one to blame but themselves. But at the end of the day, the coaches should have had more grasp on this. There's four players on one team getting in trouble. Thirdly, the NFL, the punishments don't line up when it comes to domestic violence, DUIs, or PEDs. But at the end of the day, they have to be really, really, really strict because the entire business of the NFL rests on the fact that the integrity of the game does not get messed up. So if you're going to take billions of dollars in sponsorship money and partnership money from sports books, you have to be willing to really, really, really punish players if they break the rules. And that's exactly what we're seeing. This episode is sponsored by Golden. Did you know that a Joe Montana jersey recently sold for over $1 million on Golden Auctions? Golden is the leading and most trusted destination for some of the most significant pieces of sports and pop culture collectibles. And better yet, it's not just for high ticket items. Golden's marketplace is open 24 seven and weekly auctions featuring authenticated and graded collectibles, all just starting at $5. That means collectors of all kinds can enjoy the same quality, convenience, and seamless user experience that Golden is known for at any price point. And here's the best part. Golden is offering no marketplace fees for items sold up to $10,000. So vault and list your items on Golden's marketplace now to enjoy this limited time offer. I'm a big fan of the platform, and I think you will be too. Head over to golden.com to get started. That's golden, G-O-L-D-I-N.com. All right, the second thing I want to talk about today is a little bit more of a fun one for the weekend. 
I want to talk about the business and the money behind the Goodyear blimp. So I'm sure most of you probably know what the Goodyear blimp is. It's that huge thing that flies above sporting events. It has been to every sporting event you can imagine. You've seen it on TV at the Olympics, the Super Bowl, the NBA Finals, World Series, Stanley Cup, Kentucky Derby, Indianapolis 500, Daytona 500, French Open, the Oscars. It's literally been everywhere. This thing is 75 meters long, about 250 feet. It weighs nearly 20,000 pounds, and it holds enough helium inside the base to fill more than 1 million toy balloons. It costs $100,000 per trip, depending on the price of helium. It's insane. And what it has done, the Goodyear blimp specifically, it essentially invented live aerial coverage of events on television and specifically sports. So I want to talk through a little bit of the history first and then get into some of the logistics and the economics and the money behind this thing, because it's absolutely insane. And I think it's going to blow your mind. So first, the Goodyear blimp might be the most famous blimp on the planet, but it certainly wasn't the first. So they used to refer to these things as non-rigid airships or Zeppelins. And so they were called Zeppelins back in the day. Now they're called blimps. It's essentially a non-rigid airship. It blows up with helium and it can deflate too. So the first flight took flight in 1852. And many people at the time actually thought it was going to be the future of passenger travel, passenger air travel. So not planes, but blimps. And the biggest blimp ever actually burst into flames in 1937. So the first one was in 1852, nearly 100 years later, the most devastating accident in sort of aviation history at the time happened, which was 1937, a blimp burst into flames and it was called the Hindenburg disaster. If you want to look it up, it burst into flames when it was trying to land in New Jersey, Lakehurst, New Jersey. It killed 36 of the nearly 100 people that were on board. And look at this time, there had been more than 2000 flights. Tens of thousands of people had been on these things. It covered a million miles. Everyone thought it was the future. But after this accident, the industry essentially died. There was no more commercial interest in blimp travel and things crumbled. But this is where Goodyear comes in. So when the lighter than air travel technology lost interest from the public, that's when the government came in and they had the interest. So if you look at the U.S. military, Goodyear was founded in 1898 as a tire company. But then about 20 years later, in 1910, they launched this aeronautics department, which is basically their blimp company. And they started working with the U.S. military to design rubber-infused fabrics and coating for the airplanes. Then it expanded from there. The technology got a little bit better, and they started manufacturing hundreds of these aircrafts, the blimps, for the U.S. Navy. They added new technology like record players, microphones, loudspeakers, neon lights. And the U.S. military was primarily using this stuff during the World War II when it was most popular to escort and protect warships at sea. So the warships would be moving at sea, and these blimps would be flying overhead escorting them and protecting them during World War II. But then in the 1950s, something interesting happened. Goodyear started to make a name in sports. So this was primarily basically just used for the military at the time. Goodyear then in 1950 gets a call from NBC, and they want to provide live aerial coverage of the Roses Parade, basically the Rose Bowl, in Pasadena, California in 1955. So NBC has this idea. They install a camera and a transmitting device on the Goodyear blimp, and it's kind of heavy and hard to manage, but it was the first aerial picture on live television. And everyone was like, oh shit, this is pretty cool, right? Like TVs were just becoming more popular. They saw this innovative new camera angle. Everyone's like, this is the future. So NBC decides to roll it out more. The Navy ends up shutting down their aircraft program just a few years later in the early 1960s. So Goodyear says, hey, we're done with that, but we're going to keep this division open and we're going to focus specifically on advertising PR and broadcast innovation. So we're going to make the same blimps. We're going to try to get better and better and better. We're going to use it for broadcasting, advertising, and PR. So then the next 10 years, 1970 to 1979, 
They provided aerial coverage for more than 275 sporting events in the United States. Again, that included the Super Bowl, the Indianapolis 500, the Sugar Bowl, Cotton Bowl, the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament, Kentucky Derby, Daytona 500. And the technology was getting better. For example, in 1988, Goodyear rolled out the GyroCam 360. It's essentially a camera and a mount. But this stabilized the footage and it made it tremendously better. So you could actually like watch from the aerial view. And it was actually like pretty helpful. There was this famous game in, uh, I think it was game three of the 1989 World Series where there was an earthquake in California, a 6.9 magnitude earthquake. And they used the blimp, it diverted from the stadium, and they used the blimp to locate people and help with emergency response. And it ended up saving lives. So pretty cool piece of technology. It was obviously getting more popular throughout the 70s, throughout the 80s, throughout the 90s and so forth. But the most interesting part about the blimp is like how it works in my mind, right? It's kind of cool, the history, but how it works is more important. So it's been providing aerial sports coverage for nearly 70 years. First one was in 1955 and it's 2023. So almost 70 years now, 68 years. It has covered over 2,500 sporting events in those 68 years, including six Olympics, 30 World Series, 26 Super Bowls, and countless college football games. The Goodyear Blimp is actually the first non-player or coach to be inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. There are currently four Goodyear blimps. They have names, Wingfoot 1, Wingfoot 2, Wingfoot 3, and then Europe Blimp. I don't know why they didn't get more creative with the European version, but Wingfoot 1, 2, and 3, and then the Europe Blimp. So there's four. And what Goodyear does is they have three different air bases, airship bases in the United States. There's one in Akron, Ohio, Pompano Beach, Florida, and Carson, California. So they're kind of like equally distributed throughout the United States. And one of the blimps sits at each of them so they can go to places based on the geography of the location, right? So if there's something in uh, Louisiana, the one from Florida is going to go there, right? If there's something kind of on the west side, the one from California is going to go there and so forth. And these blimps are like pretty sick. They can fly at 70 miles per hour and they can fly for nearly 24 hours straight. But because of that, each time the blimp goes up, there has to be three pilots in there and they rotate. So if the blimp's in the air for 24 hours, they rotate on eight-hour shifts and so forth. And the process to launch it and get it down is actually like pretty complicated. It requires uh, like 20 different crew members, 22 different crew members, an 18-wheeler has to wheel it out and bring it there. And then there's like all these other vans and stuff too. So it's really complex. It involves a lot of people. And the most important part though is that Goodyear actually doesn't make any money from this. Not directly, at least. So the easiest way to think about it is that Goodyear exchanges all the expenses. They agree to cover everything, equipment, travel, the helium, the employees, everything, pilots, whatever it is, they cover all the expenses. And they simply just tell the networks and the events that they want to be the presenting aerial sponsor and they want coverage during the game. So during the College Football National Championship or the World Series or the Super Bowl even or whatever they're covering, the broadcast will cut to them during the broadcast and say, look, here's our aerial coverage partner, Goodyear. And they'll show you a view from the, from the blip. And it's usually only a few seconds or a minute or something like that. But that advertising time is what pays for the whole program. There's like 75 or 80 employees that work on this thing at Goodyear and all the expenses, whatever it is. And they obviously have decided that that's worth it from a marketing perspective. And look, these things can begin a whole week. So there's this quote from Forbes that I want to read you that breaks down the process. It says, during a typical week, prep for the game begins on Wednesday with the television technicians departing on Thursday. Then on Friday, the rest of the crew leaves with the blimp. Depending on the distance to the game, there might be two travel days as the blimp flies to the location and tops out somewhere between 50 to 73 miles per hour, depending on the model of the blimp and wind conditions. But again, the bad news of all of this is the Goodyear blimp may not be around for too much longer. Now, let me explain. One, drones. 
Drones are obviously much more popular today than they have been in the past. This technology is much smaller, it's cheaper, and it's easier to use. Blimp costs about $100,000 to use every time they go up in the air with it, depending on the location and logistics and the time and all of that. But roughly speaking, $100,000 to fill the thing with helium and fly it around. A drone is obviously cheaper than that. It's easier than that. More people can use it, whatever. But the second part of this is actually the ease of use too. Blimp pilot training. I did not know this before researching this. The blimp pilot training is insane. It takes 250 to 400 hours to become a blimp pilot. To become a blimp pilot, it takes 250 to 400 hours. And the reason that's insane is because it takes about 40 to 50 hours to be a pilot, to become a pilot for a single engine plane. So it's almost 10 times longer to become a pilot for a blimp pilot training program than it is a single engine propeller plane or something like that. So it's really, really, really difficult. And what has that done? It has depleted the amount of people that can do this. So there's only 17 full-time blimp pilots in the United States today. Look, I don't think it's going to go away necessarily anytime soon. I think there's like 150 people that can fly it. So maybe some of those eventually become full-time people, but the industry has changed. There's new technology. It's obviously a little bit different today. Goodyear actually, you know, I keep calling them blimps, but they're actually not really blimps anymore. They got rid of their last blimp, I think in like 2015, 2016, and they still call them blimps. Everyone refers them to blimps. I'm obviously referring them as blimps. But now the only difference is that instead of deflating, there's a structure inside of the blimp. So when it loses the helium, it still stays in that same structure. So if you actually look up a picture of a blimp, it deflates and it gets like really tiny. And basically all you see is the cabin for the pilot and the crew. And you have to blow it up and do all these different things. But when you look at the ones today, they don't lose the structure because they have this uh, thing inside of it, basically that maintains that structure when there's helium in it or not. So, you know, whether you want to call it a non-rigid aircraft still or whatever, people are calling it blimps. It is what it is. It looks the exact same as it did previously, but it's just a little bit different and easier for them to control and use. So again, I don't know what's exactly going to be happening here, but it's in the Hall of Fame. It's done 2,500 sporting events. It's been around for nearly 100 years. It's really, really, really cool. It's obviously gotten them billions of impressions on social media and TV over the last several decades. And Goodyear's a tire company. It's kind of cool. It's kind of fun, right? Like, why not? We'll see what happens. I obviously hope that it doesn't go anytime soon. It's one of the cool traditions in sports. But this is the kind of stuff I like. I love learning about these different things. Like, who the hell knew that it could go 70 miles an hour? Who the hell knew that there was only 17 full-time pilots? Who the hell knew that you had to take 250 to 400 hours of training? Who knew it cost $100,000? Who knew it weighed 20,000 pounds? Who knew it was 250 feet long? This is the kind of stuff I like to learn. This is the kind of stuff that I like to share with you guys. So please do me a favor, share this podcast with your friends. Let me know what you enjoyed, what you didn't enjoy. Shoot me a message on Twitter. Email me jmpompliano at gmail.com. Let me know what you're enjoying, what you're not enjoying. And Monday, Monday, we're going to be talking about the Oakland A's and their move to Las Vegas. There is a ton of stuff going on with this. The details are not sparse. We have a bunch of information for you. I've been reading a bunch of stuff. I've been learning more about it. I've been digging into the details, talking to other people about it. And there's a bunch of interesting stuff going on here. I have an opinion. So on Monday, we will talk about that. I hope everyone has an amazing weekend wherever you are in the world. As always, I appreciate you subscribing to the newsletter, subscribing to this podcast, following my content. You guys make everything possible. Thank you and have a good weekend.